Tonight, Lord willing, we'd like to look in 2 Samuel chapter 7. For a good bit of period of time now, we've been looking at the life of David, remembering what Paul said in Romans 15, 4, the things written aforetime was written for our learning. The things written aforetime were the Old Testament scriptures. And so there are things about the life of David we can learn that will benefit and help us presently today. We have found David as a man after God's own heart, has been a man that has tried to honor and glorify God in general overall. We've also found David to be a man that was a man. We found David making some mistakes, using poor judgment, making wrong decisions, and therefore the old saying, the very best of men or men at best is illustrated by David. When we get to chapter 7, we're going to find David experiencing something that we really haven't seen him experience up to this time. We're going to find that David actually finds a period of time where he has been given rest by God. Notice as it starts off in chapter 7. It came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies. Up to this time, we have seen David slaying a bear and a lion. We've seen him slaying Goliath. We've seen him battling the Philistines. We've seen him battling the Amalekites and other enemies of the Lord's people. We have traced his steps for 10 years as Saul pursued him throughout the hills and the valleys and the dens and the caves, etc. David has been anything but a man uh, that was still and inactive. And here in chapter 7, we're going to find him to be inactive physically but he's still very active spiritually. We find in this chapter twice where David sat, S-A-T. The first time he sat in his house. And we find that his mind was on the Lord and the Lord's house. Now, throughout the week we sit in our house, don't we? We come to church on Wednesday night or Sunday morning. We come to God's house. So whether we're in our house or God's house, we should be thinking about God. We should be thinking about God's house, looking forward to going to God's house, and honoring the Lord. So the Lord has given David rest. Now we notice here in a providential way, this is a great providential statement. For God had given David rest from all of his enemies. Now he still has those enemies. David has plenty of enemies, but God has put like a a wall around David, a fence around David, where at this particular time, the enemies cannot come and confront David or penetrate it to get to David because God has given him rest. Later on, you'll find where his son Solomon has been selected by God to build the temple. And the Bible tells us that God gave Solomon rest for seven years took him seven years to build the temple. Had not God given him rest, he never could have got the temple built. He'd been too busy fighting the enemies. But God in his providence restrained his enemies. You know, Proverbs 21.1 says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turned it with us if he desired there's a rivers of water. God in his amazing providence is able to turn the mind and hearts of anybody no matter who they are, in a way that will benefit his people. So it's God who's given David rest. 
just doesn't happen for a period of time here now that David is not going to be engaged in battle. He's not going to be engaged in a battle against someone because God has given him rest. When you read an expression that way, we're talking about something that God literally did. God intervened on his behalf. Now, the principle, the subject of rest, comes to our attention very early in the Bible. You come to Genesis chapter 1, you find this is the chapter, of course, it gives us the details of God's work of creation. At the end of chapter 1, it says, God saw that all he had created, all he had done, all he had made was good, and it was very good. Then it starts in chapter 2. He says, thus were the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were made. And then it says, God rested on the seventh day. And God sanctified the seventh day. And God blessed the seventh day. The word Sabbath itself means rest. So the very first example of rest in the Bible is set forth by God himself. When you come to Exodus chapter 20, we find the Ten Commandments are given. And one of those Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt remember the Sabbath day, and to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt work, and the seventh day shall be a day of rest. He goes into some details. And then he refers back to what I just said from Genesis. He said, For God created the heaven and the earth in six days, and all things are in, in six days. It's one of the reasons I firmly believe that these are six 24-hour days. And we have six 24-hour days. And after six 24-hour days, God ceased from his work. He had finished it. Work of creation was perfectly completed and finished. And God rested on that seventh day. So we have six days to get our affairs in order. We have six days to do our work, take care of business. And we likewise set aside the seventh day, which in the New Testament day is the first day of the week, actually. Now, the Israelites had a commandment. They had the Saturday Sabbath. They would have worked six days, and they would have rest on that, sab on that Saturday, or that Sabbath day, a day of rest. It was going to be good for them to do that. They would cease all work and labors on that seventh day. Uh, when Israel entered into the land of Canaan, they entered into a land that was described as a land of rest. Israel, as they entered into the land of Canaan, they were given the command of God, of course, to drive all the inhabitants out of the land. Uh, not they'd be influenced by their immoral practices and their idolatry. This would be a land for them where they could find a rest. And Paul goes into details about this in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament in the third and fourth chapters. In the third chapter, uh, Paul exhorts the Hebrew Christians of that day to harden not their hearts as in the day of provocation. That is, in the day when God was provoked by the Israelites who erred in their heart. And the Bible says God swore in his wrath they would not enter into his rest. He's talking about the land of Canaan here. And they did not. From the ages of 20 years old and older, they perished and died in the wilderness. They did not enter in. We're told further in this chapter, they entered not in because of unbelief. Then chapter 4 starts off, and he starts off with lettuce. Let us. As I, I like to say, if you like lettuce, you'll like Hebrews. <laughs> Let us. 
She used 13 times, 13 chapters. She used 13 times. Let us, therefore, uh, fear, lest we likewise should enter in, should fail to enter in to his rest because of unbelief. Here's an example about that. We could fail to enter into his rest just as well. What is his rest today? Well, his rest today is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We rest in the Savior. We rest in the finished work of Jesus. As you read in chapter 4, you'll find a reference back again to God ceasing from his work on the the seventh day. And then we come down to verse 9, and Paul says, Therefore there remaineth a rest unto the children of God. Today, presently, there is a rest that remains for the children of God. Canaan's land is a type of what I'm talking about, a type of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, therefore, let us labor that we might enter in to that rest. Now, sometimes the Bible just gives an example of rest like we experience when we go to bed at night and we lay down to rest so we can rise the next morning uh, full of energy and vim and vigor, etc. At least that's what we hope we'll do. Some, not so much as others. Uh, but our body needs rest, right? You go to Mark chapter 6, and you'll find where the multitudes were there, and the Lord instructed them to come apart. To come apart. It says uh, there, and it's two, that's two words, but they were to come apart and rest for a while because there were many coming and going and had no leisure to eat. They, didn't, they were coming and going to the point that they didn't have time to even eat, and he tells them to come apart. Now, there's an old saying, if you don't come apart every once in a while, you will come apart in your life, and I believe that to be true. So there's an example simply of a physical, natural rest. When the Lord was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, as he prayed three times, what, did, what happened to the disciples? They fell asleep. But after that third time, what did the Lord say to the disciples? He says, sleep on now and take your rest. Because the time had come for him, of course, to go on to Calvary. Now the Lord gave David rest. I think it's a rest twofold here. One, he gave him a rest from his enemies so he didn't have to enter into battle. And no doubt David was worn out and weary and tired from all of his travels, all his battles, all the things he'd gone through prior to this time. But now David is wearing a crown. David is now the king of Israel. And he sat in his house. Notice it's his house that he sat in. And here's what was on David's mind while he sat in his house. And this is a great example for us. He says that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Now, I think when he says the Lord is with thee here, he's saying the same thing that I'd be saying if I spoke to one of you, and I'd say, well, I trust that the Lord will be with you. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean that I'm saying the Lord's going to give you everything that you ask for, or the Lord's going to say yes every time you pray. The Lord is with us when he says no. The Lord is with us when he, uh, you know, Uh, prevents us from going in certain directions and doing certain things. That's the Lord being with us. And this is what Nathan is saying. Now, this is the first time Nathan comes to our attention in the Scripture. It won't be the last. Nathan will play a pivotal role in the life of David in the years ahead. So he says, Go, 
Uh, and then the Lord responds. Look at verse 4. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house to dwell in? A question. Shall you build me a house to dwell in? That's what the Lord is asking David. But now, notice, you know, prior to this, oftentimes David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him directly. But here he's going to answer David through Nathan. Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. Now this is God saying this. God who created the heaven and the earth. God who gave of the birds the ability to build their nest for their home and the fox to dig a hole for their dwelling. This is God speaking. The one who, again, spoke the world into existence. How did he travel with Israel? God traveled with Israel daily in their wilderness journey. So where? Behind curtains. He's talking about the tabernacle right here. Can you imagine that? The omnipotent Lord of glory, the omnipotent God of heaven and earth. And this is where he's dwelling on this earth. He said, In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I command to feed my people with Israel, saying, Why build you not me a house of cedar? Have I ever asked a tribe, have I ever asked anybody in a tribe to build me a house of cedar? And he's talking about a house of cedar. I think here David is probably living in a house built of stones lined with cedar, cedar paneling, cedar wood that is lined in. That was a, uh, a, a top-notch dwelling in David's day. David sees he's dwelling in a house of cedar, and he looks where God's been dwelling. He's been dwelling behind curtains. Uh, David here feels like that uh, he has a better place than even God has. And it's on David's mind and David's heart. You see, David's a man after God's own heart. While that's true, I can guarantee you God was in David's heart. Vitally and also experientially. When you're born again, God is in your heart. But Experientially, we need to have the Lord in our heart in terms of our consideration, our thoughts, our meditations. And this is what's on David's mind. He's the king of Israel. It, this is what is on David's mind. Now, therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel. <laughs> where, did David, where was David when God took him? He was watching sheep. He took him from the sheep coat. And the next thing you know, he's ruler over Israel. He's the king of Israel. God took Moses that was placed in an ark in the bulrushes in the river. And God took him to be the ruler over his people and to stand face to face with Pharaoh and to bring his people out of there. God took Joseph out of a pit where his brethren had sold him to the Ishmaelites and the next thing you know, David is second command in all the land of Egypt next to Pharaoh. Only God can do such miracles as that. Only God can. And you know what? We need to be reminded where we were when God took us. You know, we're kings and priests unto God. The Bible teaches that. But by nature, we're nothing but the dust of the earth. By nature, we like the worms of the dust of the earth. By nature, we like the flowers that rise up and they're cut down. That's what we are. But God reached down and took us out of our state of depravity, took us out of a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ, 
and raised us up to sit in heavenly places. We didn't do it our own, no more than David did. No more than Moses did. No more than Joseph did. And God reminds him. We all need to be reminded of that, don't we? What were we by nature? We see what we are by grace, but what were we by nature? And apart from God, how can we change that? How can we ever change the condition we were in by nature? We could not. God reminds David where he was at when he reached down from heaven and touched him and raised him all the way to be the king over the nation of Israel. Notice what else he says. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest. Several times in David's experience we've seen where the Bible says, and the Lord was with David, and the Lord was with David, and the Lord preserved David. He says, I was with you wherever you went, David. And I've cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight and have made thee a great name. By this time in David's life, he's got a name that's well known throughout the known earth of that particular day. But God's the one who gave him that great name. Like in the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Now, Israel had been moving for 40 years in the wilderness. But Canaan's land is a place where God intended to put them and to plant them from the very beginning. Notice, he planted them. When you plant something, you, the idea is you plant the ground so it will remain right there and then it will grow. Or you plant the seed in the ground, it comes up and it grows up right there where you have planted. And God planted Israel, according to Isaiah, as a noble vine. He said, I have planted thee, them, that they may dwell in a place of their own. That was going to be their land, the land of Canaan, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And it's since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest, there's that word for the second time, caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, he says, I've caused you to rest. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. Now it's David's concern and David's desire to build God a house. God sends a message back to David through Nathan, reminding him of who he was when he picked him up and brought him up and what he did concerning this people, how he gave them rest. David's been reminded of that. And now he tells David he's going to build him a house. <laughs> now David was talking about building a house out of stone and mortar, so to speak. But God's talking about building a spiritual house through David. Now this is what is known as the Davidic covenant that God made with David. We're going to read about it in just a moment right here. But the very first time that God promised a Savior, the very first time he promised a Messiah was found in Genesis 3.15 when God spoke to the serpent. He said, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, a woman doesn't have a seed. This is a picture of the virgin birth of Christ. It says, it, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head, and it, your seed, shall bruise his heel. Now, we know that heels can be bruised, and you can continue on, but the head is the vulnerable part of the body. And he says, it shall bruise thy head. We're going to see, we see here where Christ would deliver the death blow 
unto Satan himself. All right, that tells us that God's going to send a man. He's not going to send an angel. An angel didn't redeem you. A man redeemed you. Then we come to Genesis chapter 12. And God is dealing with Abraham, telling him to come up out of the land, of uh, the land there of the Chaldees, to a land I will show thee. He says, I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. And in thee, in thy, and in thee, uh, and it doesn't say thy seed here, but it says it later on. Thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The seed under consideration is Christ. The seed is Christ. So what has God told us here? He said, the Savior, the Messiah is going to be a man. And he's going to be a Jew. He's going to be the seed of Abraham. We come to Genesis 49, verse 10. And Abraham's pronouncing blessings upon his children. And he says concerning Judah... He says, for the lawgiver shall not depart from Judah, nor, uh, nor shall depart, not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh come. Shiloh is another Old Testament name for Christ. So we're told he's going to come out of the tribe of Judah. We're getting more and more information here. Of course, we find where God tells us in the fifth chapter of Micah where he's going to be born. He'll be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Remember that, the city of David. We find in Daniel where the very time Christ would come in this world can be calculated through his writings. And then in Isaiah 7 and 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Isaiah 9, 6, Unto us a child is born, us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And so you have the pieces of the puzzle all coming together in the Old Testament. God is going to bless David and the nation of Israel for his son to come through the line of David. The son of God, the son, God's son and God's word is going to come through the line of David. Let's notice what he says here. He said, now I will, he will build thee a house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, talking about his death, his departure... I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. I want you to notice in just a moment or two the word forever. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. He said, there was a time in Saul's life I took my mercy away, but I'll not take it away from the man that's under consideration here. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now, Solomon followed David. The short-term fulfillment of this is Solomon. But the word forever here takes us to another man. We're going to find where David saw another son besides his son Solomon. He saw the Son of God. You know how the book of Matthew starts off the New Testament? It says the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus Christ was the son of David. Now, in Luke chapter 1, about verses 29, 30, 31, and 32, you're going to find where the angel has come uh, unto Mary, telling her that she shall conceive and bring forth a son. Thou shall call his name Jesus. And you're going to see where he says, For he shall sit upon the throne 
of David. And he shall establish the kingdom of Jacob forever and forever. Obviously, the Lord is not talking about Solomon here. He's talking about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about a spiritual kingdom. He's talking about a spiritual throne, a spiritual reign. It's another way, of course, this can be fulfilled. You go to Acts chapter 13, and you'll find scriptures over there that correspond with this. According to all these words, according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Now, David, remember, he sat in his house. And David is thinking about God and about God's house. And he's thinking about how God has traveled with Israel and journeyed with Israel here behind curtains, that is, behind the tabernacle. And yet here he is uh, living in a house made of cedars, the finest house a person could live in in this world. And it's bothering David. And David wants to build a house for God. And then God reminds him he's never asked anybody to build him a house. He traveled with his people here. He, he dwelt in a tent, traveled in a tent. He came down and sat on that mercy seat between the two cherubims in the tabernacle. That was God's seat. God never intended to have a house like that. But you have to commend David for the desire and the love of God that's in his heart, you see. So this is a message that God sends back to David through Nathan. Now I want you to notice what verse 18 then went King David in and sat before the Lord. Now, here's the word sat, S-A-T, for the second time. Now, David sat in his house, and David spoke to Nathan what was in his heart. He gets a message from God through Nathan, and what a message this was. An everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne. Uh, all the things is. Last forever here, he's given unto David. And now David responds to that. And David sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? You're going to see a, a beautiful example of true humility in the life of David. You know, Peter tells us that we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In due season, he shall lift us up, exalt us. Humility is a very important biblical doctrine. Uh, the Lord's people are to be clothed with humility. We see Paul in Colossians 3.12 says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, humbleness of mind. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, it was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought of Robert, equal with God, but made himself of no uh, reputation. And he said, but he humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. You're going to see a beautiful example of true humility here in this man, David. We're talking about a king talking to the king, an earthly king talking to a heavenly king. David says, who am I? Now, this was in keeping with David's character. Is it not? Have we seen David's life from the very beginning? The very first thing we are told about David, there are six traits given unto him. He was a mighty man. He was a valiant man. He was a prudent man. Uh, he was gifted in playing the musical instruments. A comely man. And the last thing is said about David, and the Lord was with him. That's what people had observed in the life of David at a very early age, that the Lord was with him. When you come to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17, this is where we find David and Goliath engaged in battle. But before that takes place, you're going to find where David makes a statement unto Saul. Saul tried to equip him with his armor. 
Well, to begin with, he tried to discourage him from even going out to battle. But here's what David said. He said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion. He didn't say unto Saul, well, you, you, don't, you must not have ever heard about what I did back there when I was a shepherd boy. Did you hear how I slew the lion and, and slew the bear? Uh, he didn't brag on himself. He gave glory to God. He says, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion. And then when he takes the armor that Saul was going to put, him, put on him off, and he goes to the brook and gets the five smooth stones, he's got his sling, the shepherd's bag. He goes out, he engages in conversation with Goliath, and Goliath taunts him and ridicules him <laughs> and just puts him down. And David says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. And the Lord shall deliver you into my hand this day, which the Lord did. You see, a man who's clothed with humility is always going to give honor and glory to the Lord. He's never going to try to take it from him. He's never going to try to look at himself and boast. And just, just think of uh, what David's just been told here by God. It, this would make the heads of most men swell way up. It would cause mo most people to be uh, lifted up in pride and be fed, uh, you know, uh, uh, in a carnal sense. But not David. David is exactly the same as a king as he was when he was a shepherd boy. David has never changed. That's a lesson that for all of us, isn't it? By, you know, Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what I can say. That's what you can say. In fact, that's the only thing I can say. Sometimes you ask people how they're doing. They say, well, better than I deserve. Of course, Dave Ramsey says that all the time. You know, but he's, he didn't come up with it. <laughs> Dave Ramsey didn't originate that. When somebody tells me, well, I'm, you know, doing better than I deserve, I just usually tell them, well, you're speaking for all of us. That's a true statement on behalf of every single person. There is. The Lord is good to us, and the Lord's better to us than we deserve. Now, when Abigail, remember when Abigail came, when David and his men were charging forth, and David's design was to kill her husband Nabal, and Abigail meets David, and she pours her heart out to David. You know, after that's all over with, and she intervened on behalf of her and her family and her husband. You know what David said? He says, the Lord today has sent you. David recognized the hand of God. He recognized the providence. He says, the hand of the Lord today has sent you. And surely the Lord's hand had done that. David always gave praise and honor to the Lord. Remember the two times that David could have slain Saul? The first time in a cave, the next time when they was asleep down in the valley? You know what David told Saul? The Lord, uh, David says to Saul, the Lord has delivered you into my hands today. David did not take the opportunity to slay Saul. I want you to notice David had known for a long time he was going to be the king of Israel and he never did one thing to try to speed it up. He never done one thing to try to get to that throne any quicker than God's providence was going to lead him and bless him and deliver him and put him on that throne. I'm giving you four examples there where David referenced the Lord delivering him, the Lord blessing him, and the Lord sending somebody. So David uses this expression. What am I? Who am I, O oh Lord God? Now, this would be a great time to jump the rabbit of depravity, wouldn't it? 
and just run after that rabbit of depravity and speak for a while on depravity, but we're not going to do that. The statement speaks for itself, doesn't it? Who am I, O Lord? This is the king of Israel speaking. Who are you, David? Well, you're, you're a man uh, that showed great bravery, great, great courage all the days of your life. You're a man that, you know, even whenever Saul gave uh, his daughter uh, to him in marriage, you know what David said on that occasion? He says, is it a light thing that somebody like me that is poor should become the king's son-in-law? Contrast that with Haman in the book of Esther. You know when Haman got promoted, you know, he went home, you know what he did? He, he began to tell everybody about his promotion, about his riches, and about his family. He, he was just bragging up a storm. You don't find David bragging. You find David as a beautiful picture in many different ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is a man that's a great example of true humility. But all great men are and have been down throughout the history of time. You look in the book of Genesis chapter 18, you're going to find where God's revealed unto Abraham that he's going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know, Bible readers know how Abraham responded to that. And he asked the question, was not the judge of all the earth do right? He said, Lord, if you find 50 righteous in the city, per adventure, would you spare them? And then he says, for he that makes requests is nothing but dust and ashes. Abraham says to the Lord, he says, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. Abraham, one of the greatest men in Israel's history. Abraham, Moses, and David, probably the three most important men for different reasons in the history of Israel. And Abraham, who's the father of Israel, of the Jews, says, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. Wouldn't it be great if the leaders of our country would get on national television <laughs> and ask the American people, to humble themselves, and he says, I, I want you to know I'm nothing but dust and ashes. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. It ain't going to happen. That's what Abraham said. When God called Moses in Exodus chapter 3, you know when that bush was burning and the angel spoke to Moses out of that burning bush, you know what Moses' response was? He said to the Lord, basically the same thing that David is saying right now. He says, who am I, O Lord, that should go down to the land of Egypt and bring thy people out? This uh, calling and commission of God doesn't, shouldn't puff people up. It should humble them. Bring them down. Samuel said to Saul, when thou was little in thine own sight. There was a time when Saul saw his littleness, but Saul grew up. John the Baptist, another man who's a, such a classic example of true humility. John the Baptist says, The one that cometh after me is preferred before me. And he that cometh after me says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose the shoe latches of his shoes. And then he says, I must decrease that he might increase. That's the kind of language you want to hear from your leaders. And then the Apostle Paul. The Apostle to the Gentiles. 
the human writer of 14 to 27 books of the New Testament. This man, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, I am the least of all the apostles who have not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. He said, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And to the Ephesians, he says, unto me who am less than the least of all the saints is this grace given that I might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm less than the least. I think that makes him the least, right? If he's less than the least, I think it makes him the least. He said he was the chief of sinners. Now, I might want to debate that with him. <laughs> the chief of sinners. The least of all the apostles. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You don't see him saying something about uh, what he did to become one of God's children. He lays it all, my friends, to the account of grace. This is what David is doing right here. And yet this was a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Now listen to what he says about God. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people? Talking about Israel. Even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land, wherefore thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from these nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people of thee forever. There's a fourth forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. I want to just read this to you in closing tonight from the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. This is Moses speaking. Notice the similarity of the language. Deuteronomy 4.33 Did ever people hear that voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as thou hast heard and live? Has that ever happened before to any other man, any other nation? The answer is no. Or hath God essayed to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation? That's Israel that he took out of the, out of the land of Egypt. By temptations, by signs, and by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by a stretched out arm, <clears throat> and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Question. Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. It's almost the very same thing David is saying, isn't it? There is no other God beside him. And in verse 26, David begins to break out in great praise. He says, Let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of thy servant David be established forever. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee a house. 
God gave David rest that, God, that David might see the revelation that God gave unto him. I'll build thee a house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And thou, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words are true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servants. What an experience David had. He sat in his own house, then he sat in God's house. He sat at the feet of God. And this was, God gave David a response through Nathan, and then David responded back to God in such a beautiful way. David put David where David belonged, and David put God where God belonged. Now I've said this many times, if you see people any higher than the dust and the worms of the dust of the earth, you got him too high. If you see God any lower than sitting upon his throne in glory as the supreme ruler of all the universe, you got him too low. And that's where I see God having God in many places. Many people in this world today, when they talk about God, they don't talk about him as the supreme, omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe. No, it's not the God of the Bible that I hear. And when you hear man talking about man and all his great accomplishments, that's, that's not what the Bible says about man. Man, apart from God, can do nothing. But through Christ Jesus, we can do all things through him.